Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Romans 9, start on uh, page 5 of your notes. Page 5 of your notes on your Romans 9 through 11. And again, we're going to unpack Romans 9 through 11 in a non-Calvinistic way. Just to understand what Paul is doing, he is answering a question, and it's this simple. What happened to Israel, and how come we didn't see their national regeneration? If God made these promises to Israel that all Israel would be saved, then what happened to Israel during Messiah's first coming? And so Paul is going to unpack that. And the conclusion of the arguer with Paul is stating something like this. It appears that God didn't make good on his promise, that God didn't deliver like he said he would. And therefore, Paul, if you're telling us that we can trust God for our salvation, how can we trust that if we can't trust God with Israel? It appears that he didn't make good on Israel. Therefore, how can we trust God to make good on us? You see the one-to-one comparison? Because he's been discussing what salvation is from Romans 1 through 8. And he's given all three aspects of salvation. Okay, so that's where the questioner is coming. So Paul needs to unpack this. Start in verse 1. It says, I tell you the truth in Christ. That's the first witness, that, that what I'm saying to you is coming from the truthfulness of me being a believer, so I'm basically not lying. So one of my witnesses is being a believer in Christ, okay? Second, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So my conscience is my second witness, and then it bears witness in the Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit is the third witness that I'm, what I'm about to say. So why tell me this? As a good Jewish interpreter, does Paul give three witnesses for what he's about to say? He says, my words are in Christ. My conscience is telling you this. And the Holy Spirit is telling you this through me. You, for a legal proceeding in a Jewish court, you have to have at least two or three witnesses. And so Paul starts his legal proceedings in Romans 9 through 11 with saying what his three or who his three witnesses are uh, as he goes down. Okay, so this attests to, to his integrity. It attests to what he's about to say about Israel, okay? He says, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. So the idea is that he is grieved over what has happened to Israel. And so he's showing his devotion to the nation. He's showing that he's part of this nation, obviously, and that he's deeply hurt by what happened, and in verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. The brethren are referring to the Jewish people. My countrymen, according to the flesh. Obviously, biological Jews is what he's referring to. The term I could wish, in Greek, it should be, uh, it's a, pot a potential imperfect. 
which means that the way you should translate this is that Paul is saying, I almost wish that this could be available. Okay? I almost wish. Now, what he's saying theologically, it's not available, but I almost wish it was possible. What? Well, to be accursed from Christ. Okay, so unfortunately, a lot of the Calvinists and a lot of people misinterpret what he's saying. They're saying, is, is, Paul is saying he wish he could, he could go to the lake of fire for the sake of Israel. That is not what Paul is saying. He is not saying he wish he could be cursed to hell for the sake of Israel. He would not say that theologically. That's, that's crazy talk. I don't know why people interpret it that way, but let me unpack the word accursed. The word accursed carries the Hebrew idea of harem. In Greek, it's anathematai or anathema. And where anathema comes from is comes from the Hebrew harem. And harem in Hebrew means to utterly destroy physically. Okay? So when Joshua goes into the promised land in certain towns and villages, he be, he will be told to harem them. Not everybody, but certain areas he will he'll be told to utterly, physically wipe every living creature out. Animals, babies, women, children, men, everyone who is alive is to be haremed, physically destroyed. And then on top of that, they're to burn the city down. Nothing, and they're not to take any possessions with them. So the word anathema in Greek derives its origin from the Hebrew harem. Okay? So when Paul is using this, I wish myself were haremed from Christ. <clears throat> Based on that understanding, what is he saying? Not sent to the lake of fire, but what? I would physically be willing to lose my physical life for the Jews. That I would be a substitute for them physically, not spiritually, but physically, if it would bring their national regeneration. So he's not saying, I wish I could go to hell. He's saying, I would physically die for my nation, is what he is saying. Okay? Why is that important? Because Paul is trying to mimic being a substitute for them, like Messiah, in which he has taught, is a substitute for us spiritually in our salvation. Okay? So he's not going too far of saying, I wish I could spiritually die for them. He's saying, I just wish I could physically die for them. If that would, if, if me dying would bring their national salvation, I would be all for that. Knowing that he could be resurrected and, you know, uh, be with Christ spiritually is what he's trying to say. Okay. He continues on about Israel in verse 4 on the next page on page 6. He says, Who are Israelites to whom pertain, number one, the adoption, the glory, number two, three, the covenants, four, the giving of the law, five, the service of God, six, the promises, of whom are the fathers, seven, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, or Messiah came, that's number eight, who is overall the eternally blessed God, amen. So if you're dealing with a cult member, right there in that passage, at the end of the passage, it calls the Messiah the blessed eternal God. 
But anyway, what we're, we're focusing in on is Israel right now. So notice that Paul gives eight blessings that Israel had and still has to this day. And he talks about the high privilege of Israel. So he says, number one, they were adopted. We studied, we're studying that in the Exodus. The children of Israel were adopted as a nation in Exodus four. When he told Pharaoh, God told Moses through Pharaoh, sorry, to Pharaoh through Moses that Israel is my firstborn son. Their adoption takes place right there in Exodus. And we saw that. The second thing is they saw the glory. They were privy to the Shekinah glory, not only in the desert, but also in the tabernacle and the temple. Third, the idea of the covenants right there referred to the four unilateral covenants and the one conditional covenant. Let me enumerate those. The unilateral, unconditional covenants that God made with Israel, Abrahamic, Davidic, land, and new. The conditional covenant is called the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is a conditional one that if you disobey it, you get kicked out of the land. The Mosaic covenant has now been rendered inoperative by the cross. So the Mosaic law is no longer in effect. It does not make its demands on people right now. What law are we under then? Do you guys remember? The law of the Messiah or the law of the Spirit. We are under the Messiah's law right now, not the law of Moses. How many, how many laws are in the law of the Messiah? There were 613 in the Mosaic law. It's probably close to about 1,200 laws under the law of the Messiah. If you read the New Testament and go to the and go through all of it and you read all the commands, the admonitions, the encouragements, all of those are commands. There's close to about 1,200 laws under the law of the Messiah. Now, does law save you? No. no. What is law for? It is for the believer to know how to behave. It is for the believer to know what God expects out of them. It is for the believer to be rewarded based on that behavior and that obedience. It doesn't save you. Okay, so it's part of your sanctification of you becoming conformed to the image of Christ. That's what those 1,200 laws are about. Now, question. Just as an aside, because this is a big mistake that happens in the Christian world. Has the Ten Commandments been rendered inoperative? It's, but the Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic Law. Paul says the, the Mosaic Law has been rendered inoperative. In fact, according to 2 Corinthians, he says the administrations of the Ten Commandments have been are gone. You want to read that? I'm not preaching antinomianism because we're under the law of the Messiah. But I want, to, I want to make sure that we understand this. I didn't get my glasses today, didn't I? Hold on. Someone gave me a pair of glasses. It was a guy, and it, it said uh, Gloria Vanderbilt on him. I said, why is he wearing Gloria Vanderbilt? <laughs> they worked. But they were ladies' glasses. Why is a guy giving me Gloria Vanderbilt glasses? <laughs> okay. If 
I can find it here. Okay, I think I found it. Okay, so Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the spirit, not the letter. And um, he goes on to say where, where I want to start. Let me just start in verse 4. And we have such, such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, okay? Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not the letter, but of the spirit. He's talking about the letter is the mosaic, okay? For the letter kills, or the law, or the mosaic law kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, do you know what the Ten Commandments are being called right now by Paul? The ministry of death. Why? Why does Paul call? Let me just make sure you know what he's saying. Because he says, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was, which glory was passing away. So we definitely know who's, what he's referring to. The ones written on the stones. That's the Ten Commandments. But he calls it administration of death, not administration of life. Because what does the laws bring if you can't fulfill them? Death. The minute you trespass the law, you're dying physically and spiritually. You're going to die. And so he calls it the ministration of death. And he continues on, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? He's referring to the ministry of the Spirit now under the Messiah, the law of the Messiah. For if the ministry of, the con of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. So in comparison, he's saying the new covenant, the law of the Messiah has more glory than the law of Moses, what he's trying to say. For if what is passing away was glorious, the Mosaic law, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And he continues on, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit is the Lord, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror of glory are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Okay, what is his point there? His point is that the, the Mosaic law, and he'll say this in Romans, um, can not bring life, it can only bring death, right? And he's comparing that with the new, the new situation under Christ. So he takes aim at the Ten Commandments, and he also says then that the, that the Mosaic law in Romans, that the law has been rendered inoperative. Okay? So when you put it all together, he is including the Ten Commandments into the law of Moses. Tell me what it is. It's one what? It's one unit. That's right. 
So you cannot make distinctions in which typically those of the reform do. They make a distinction between the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. You can't do that. The Mosaic law in the New Testament is referred to one packaged unit. You break, like James, like he's saying, break one law. Of James, James says you break one law, you break them all. They're a chain that's linked together. That includes the Ten Commandments. So how do you deal with being under the law of the Messiah when the ministration of death is now over and rendered inoperative? What do we do with those? Do we just bring them over because we like them? So when you start looking at the law of the Messiah, what you will notice, and here's the answer, that there are carryovers from different administrations. There's a carryover from the Mosaic Law Administration, and guess what happens with the Ten Commandments? Nine of them are carried over into the law of the Messiah. Tell me which one is not carried over. The Sabbath. So under the law of the Messiah, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated and we are to be obeyers of thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. All those appear except thou shalt keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for what nation? Israel. There you go. So in order to deal with understanding, um, like with a Seventh-day Adventist or someone that's trying to keep the Ten Commandments, They'll say, well, you just don't like the Ten Commandments. It's like, no, I love the Ten Commandments. But nine of them, I'm only obligated to obey. I'm only obligated to obey the nine that got carried over into the new administration. So that's how you deal with that. And that's how you understand that you're not under the Mosaic Law. You're under the Law of the Messiah, which includes nine of them. But like I said, there's 1,200 of them on top of that. Yes. Yes. And it's just... It's Christos in Greek, but it's Messiah in Hebrew. Um, the other term Paul will use is called the law of the spirit, the law of the spirit of life. He'll use that term too. And again, in every administration, there's always law. What was the law in the Garden of Eden? What was the one law? You can't eat of the tree, right? This is one law. They broke that one law. So in every administration, there's law. In the Messianic kingdom, there's law, by the way. Are there carryovers from our law to the Messianic kingdom? Yeah. But there's different laws, too, in the Messianic kingdom. So it just depends on which administration you're in. Okay, that being the case, so <clears throat> they had the, the blessings of the Abrahamic land, Davidic, and New, and the Mosaic covenant was rendered inoperative, but they had that as well. That's conditional. And then they had uh, the law, obviously the Mosaic law given from Mount Sinai. They, uh, the idea of the, uh, the service there, it says the service of God, that's referring to the temple practices and the, the uh, tabernacle practices that the priests did. Then it says the, uh, and the promises. The promises are also embedded in the covenants. That's what the covenants are. They are promises, but there's more than just one promise. There's multiple promises. Like, for instance, uh, one of the promises about um, the nation of Israel is they will be the head of the nations and not the tail. That's one more promise on top of the other promises. And then you got, uh, it, it says, of whom are the fathers? That's talking about Israel's heritage. They're linked 
to the to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that important? Because the Abrahamic covenant was made with the patriarchs. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant applies to every living biological Jew today. And then eighth, the last one is the Messiah came through them. Okay. Why is he saying this? Why is he going through this big argument to the Roman Christians about the importance of Israel? Because I can tell you what they're doing. Take a guess what a Gentile would start thinking of not when they watch Israel and they, they're in a state of unbelief and they've rejected their own Messiah. Please tell me what Gentiles automatically think without having, I'm saying, erase your mind of what you know about Scripture. What automatically have you seen in church history when the Gentiles look at the Jews in unbelief? Thank you. Throughout all of history, we know exactly what Gentiles who do not have their minds conformed to the word of God, what they automatically think when they see unbelieving Jews. They are forsaken of God. They are rejected of God. And then you get the whole anti-Semitic mentality that comes through, which the church did early on. By the second century, the church is anti-Semitic. The Catholic church is anti-Semitic. The Reformed church was anti-Semitic. Even to this day, there's churches that have replacement theology. That's another version of anti-Semitism. Okay, so... Paul is saying all this to some bozo there in the Roman church who is saying, God's done with Israel. Look at them. They're all in unbelief. And, if they, and, and so, therefore, God is, they rejected God and God has rejected them. They're done. That's the kind of bozo that Paul is having to deal with. Okay? Guys, it's no different than today. There's theologians who have PhDs who are saying the same thing, that God has done with Israel, that God has rejected Israel and now has made the church Israel. Is that true? No. So Paul then goes all through these glories of what Israel has, and they still have them. That's their heritage. You're never going to get away from that. Now, i got to end on this. What was the homework from last week? You remember? What were the three reasons God chose Israel? Number one, they're the least of all nations. That's Deuteronomy 7, 7. They are the least of all the nations, and that's why I picked you. What's a second reason? I think I mentioned it last week. The promises to Abraham. That's Deuteronomy 4, 37. The, the, the fact that the Jews are offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that they're in a covenantal relationship because of their father, Abraham. So in essence, what you could say is, the reason God chose the people of Israel is due to the promises made to Abraham. That's number two. And this is the one I forgot. And I could not believe I forgot that, but it refreshed my mind. He tells them in Deuteronomy 9, 46... Deuteronomy 14.2, Deuteronomy 26.18. So let me repeat that. Deuteronomy 9.46, Deuteronomy 14.2, and Deuteronomy 26.18. That he chose them to be his possession. 
Now, why would he do that? That you're mine. Now, this might trip you up, but this is going to be even a deeper homework assignment. In light of the correct translation of a Deuteronomy 32 passage, I have to say that because your Bible won't translate it right. But let me give you a clue. And this will really help you to understand why God chose Israel as his possession. You're mine. You're my nation. Okay? If you go to Deuteronomy 32, and unfortunately, most of your Bible translations are not going to translate this correctly. And so let me tell you what the Dead Sea Scrolls and other translations translate this. And I think it's, it's the correct one. Verse 9. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, that's the mistranslation. I'll explain that in just a second. For the Lord portioned his people, Jacob, is the place of his inheritance. Now, this passage is tied to the scattering of the nations in, in, from Babylon in, in Genesis 11. Okay, so follow me on this. The mistranslation, when we get to the older, and I'm not saying the older is always the better translation, because you have to go by majority text and whatnot, but the older translations, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think are more accurate, and it's based on this. When God, it says, when God portioned, uh, 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 sorry, set the boundaries of the people, it's referring to the Tower of Babel, according to the number of the children of Israel. That translation doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur. What do you mean? Israel, did Israel exist at the Tower of Babel? No. So that's where the mistranslation comes. Do you know what it really says, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other older translations? According to the Banacha Elohim, that he separated out the people. Now that makes sense according to Deuteronomy 32, and then I marry it with Israel becoming his nation because Deuteronomy 32 is telling you what did he do to the nations. He, uh, he separated them according to who and gave them over to them. The sons of God. The nations were given over at the Tower of Babel to the Banacha Elohim and who they were worshiping. You want to worship them? Then go be a nation that does worship them. And I'll start over and choose my own nation. It's a picture of Romans 1 on a global scale. So what was happening at the Tower of Babel? Who were they worshiping? Themselves, obviously, but they, they made a tower unto the stars. You know what the stars represent? Demons, fallen angels. They were worshiping fallen angels at the, at the tower. So God, in essence, in the Tower of Babel, not only scattered them by the languages, but according to Deuteronomy, I scattered them and I assigned them the very ones they were worshiping, saying, you want to worship that fallen angel? Then go right ahead. He's your one that you follow. And so all the nations had rejected Yahweh. And so what does Yahweh do? 
I'll build a new nation. And how does he do that? It's one, it's his own. He's given the rest of the Gentiles over to the false gods that they follow. But I'm going to start with this. How did he start a nation? With one guy. He started the Jews with one guy. So he calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And then at that point starts the promises that I have a nation. So one of the reasons, the, the third reason Israel is picked is because they're chosen to be this nation that belongs to Yahweh and will do what? Serve him, but to do what? Their role now. So I've moved into that. He's picked them, okay. but he's picked them. That you're my possession to, share. to do what to the nations I gave over to the, the fallen angels. What? Plow them? <laughs> to get them to come home. To get the ones I scattered and I gave over to their fallen angels, I'm sending you, Israel, to go back and retrieve them. To be a light to who? To the Gentiles. Okay, use the Hebrew word. Goyim. The nations. The ethnos. I gave them over, but I, your job as a nation is to be a holy, royal priesthood in order to get the Gentiles back to me. Accor but according to what? Forcing them? According to their free will. That's your job, Israel. That's why I chose you. That's why I picked you up to be my own nation. A nation of my own that will do the job of getting and reclaiming the nations back. That's a Deuteronomy 32 perspective on why God chose Israel. Now, question. What happened to Israel? See, you see where the interlocutor, the, the arguer with Paul is coming from? The interlocutor knows more the theology than you think. He is saying, I know the Deuteronomy passage. Israel failed at it. They did not do it. In fact, Israel has rejected their own Messiah. Paul, explain that one to me. You see where he's coming from? That's who Paul is arguing with. And that's why he starts going over the blessings of Israel and that the fact that the, he will say, the call of Israel is irrevocable. They will one day do their job by bringing the nations back to Jesus. They will. Not yet. Okay, that's more than probably what you're borrowing for. But, study Deuteronomy. It's not according to Israel, the sons of Israel. It couldn't be. Israel didn't exist. It has to be the original translation, Benacha Elohim. He gave these nations over to the gods they were worshiping. Yikes. Scary, huh? Let's pray and we'll get you running. We went long. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons. 
and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.